Well, 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 welcome to the mayhem Dick and Lloyd mayhem Media mayhem Marketing mayhem You might love it, you might hate it Here's my favorite freaking show Hey, Dick Wilson here. Loy Edge here. Dick, always great to be with you. and welcome to our great big George Washington's birthday party here at Ivanhoe Temple. The whole gang is just tickled to death to see the big crowd down here at Ivanhoe Temple tonight. We've really got a swell show all set for everybody. Now, you folks out there in the air, you missed out on a little fun around here, but you're going to be in with us now for the next 60 minutes. And that, my friends, is a little bit of the opening theme to the Brush Creek Follies that began in 1938 over KMBC 950 AM radio here in town at the Ivanhoe Temple at Linwood and Park. It was on every Saturday night across the Midwest with down-home harmonies and homespun humor across the stage. That's just part of some of the over 300,000 sound archives in the Mar Sound Archives on the campus of UMKC. On this show, we're going to talk to the curator, Chuck Haddix, about all that sound. And we're going to talk to Chuck Haddix, who hosts The Fish Fry, Friday and Saturday nights on KCUR. Hmm, they're the same guy. It's going to be a great show. Yeah, let me get this. Hello? Hey, Dick. It's Buzz Martini. Oh, Buzz, yeah. a sales guy for our podcast, yeah. Yeah. Hey, listen, champ. Yeah, I'm at the gym again. I'm on that ecliptical thing. Oh, committed. Oh, man, I'm trying to work off this steak dinner. Oh. Uh, from last night. Yeah. You know what I found out, Dick? Kansas City yeah. is a great city for steak. Uh, traditionally, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's fantastic. It may be the best. Uh, yeah. Last night, uh, yeah. I went out with a wife and... Uh, cool. I'm telling you, Dick. Where'd you go? The steak. Yeah? Delicious. I mean, really a cut above it. I hate to use that term, but... Traditionally great. No pun intended. <laughs> but uh, it, it it really was a fantastic dinner. Yeah? Uh, a meal beyond compare. And Kansas City should be proud of their steaks. One of the old traditional steakhouses? Is that where you go? Where, uh, where'd you go? Applebee's. Applebee's? Anyway, listen, champ. You know, the president was in town, and I saw these protesters. It got me thinking, we need a good, catchy slogan. Yeah. Like they've got, you know, they got that... Uh, what? Oh, I don't know, resist and all that. Yeah. And I thought, hey, that's catchy. Uh, we need something to promote this uh, podcast. Mm-hmm. Heaven knows we need something. Anyway, so I was remembering back to your old radio show, you had that, uh, you had that slogan, Casey's Favorite Dick. You remember that? Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I, I, want, I wanted to borrow it without stealing it, you know, so make a slight alteration. So I was thinking, uh, you know, Dick and Loy's media, marketing, whatever the hell it is. And then the slogan is uh, Casey's favorite dicks. What do you think, champ? I don't think it plays that way. That not, not, no, that's not quite the same. Uh, uh, no. All right, it's a quiet setting right now. Aloy, uh, where are we here? Dick, it looks like we're at the Mars Sound Archives, UMKC. 
unbelievable place. We are in a room filled with old jukeboxes and uh, radios and turntables. And, and, yeah, it's so cool here. Look at that thing. There's a set of jazz all-star baseball cards out of cigarette packages and all <laughs> kinds. And then there's this really crazy old thing here named Chuck Haddocks. <laughs> and there he is. Hi, Chuck. Hi, Dick. Lloyd, good to be here with you. My guys, that's a familiar voice. Anybody who listens Friday and Saturday night uh, to the uh, Friday night fish fry, the Saturday night fish fry knows Chuck. How many yeah. you've been doing that for a, a bunch of years? About 33 years. Uh, come October, I've been doing the fish fry. Roll back your rug and get ready for another public radio party at the fish fry. 33 years. Yeah. Yeah. Now still, that's your alter ego, right? Yeah, that's my, I'm Chuck Haddock when I do the fish fry. Otherwise, I'm Chuck Haddock's, you know. Uh, my wife, Terry Mack, will tell you that I can be an interesting couple of guys. <laughs> well, one's the uh, performer name and the other is the bill-playing name, I'm sure. Yes, that's correct. Well, I was doing I was doing jazz. I started doing jazz for KCUR in 1984. Mm -hmm. And I was doing Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I would go in and, and engineer the Walt Boudin program, be the control room operator for the Walt Boudin program, play little short segments, and at 10 o'clock I'd come on and do jazz until 2 o'clock in the morning. Okay. Ed Toller used to call it nodding with Chuck when I'd get into the real <laughs> mellow stuff about 1 o'clock. And so I wanted to do something a little bit different and kind of break out of that jazz mold because there's so many strong uh, opinions about what is jazz, you know? Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, and I was being discouraged from playing fusion music, and I, I was kind of constrained playlist to swing jazz. And I wanted to break out and do something else, so I pitched them the program of the fish fry. Originally, I was going to call it the barbecue hour, and then I was listening to Louis Jordan and heard Saturday Night Fish Fry, and I said, this is perfect. And so to step out from my jazz persona, I created a new persona called Chuck Haddock. Ironically, whenever a young broadcaster will come to me, uh, say that wants to be on KKFI and ask me my opinion, I tell yeah. them, use your real name. Don't sure. use the Jazz Insider or something yeah, like that. Right, yeah. Because that becomes your brand. Sure. And uh, I always used my name for years, so. Oh, yeah. Just the easy way to go, yeah. Well, I learned from Walt Bodine, it's best to be yourself. Mm -hmm. Just be yourself on the radio and don't try and be, hey, you know, hey, Kansas City and all that stuff. Just, just be yourself. Yeah. And that way, you know, you're always straight with your listeners, and your listeners know exactly who you are. I always remember the voice changes that some people go through. I used to work at KCMO AM years ago when I was first starting, and Bill Kennedy was the news guy. Mm -hmm. Remember that name? I remember him. And uh, you'd come into the studio, and, and uh, you know, we'd channel, hey, Bill, how you doing? Oh, pretty good. Yeah, that's kind of, all right, here's Bill Kennedy with the news. G'day, I'm Bill Kennedy, KCMO Radio News. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's old school. Yeah, oh yeah, sure. Well, Chuck's always the same, even if he does go by two different names. Well, that's true. <laughs> Authentic. Very. Authentic Chuck Haddix. How did true. you pitch that show? Now, Tom, it's part of the way the show is set up. It's jazz, blues. Uh, it's blues, soul, rhythm, and blues, jump and jive, and zydeco. Bingo. I really <laughs> wanted to mix it up. So in those days, of course, you did a mixtape. And so our program director, Joyce, uh, I, I submitted a mixtape to her, and the first track was, was Professor Longhair doing Big Chief. And Lindsay Shannon was doing a blues show. Many Phases of the Blues. Many Phases of the Blues on Saturday afternoons. And so I was really forced to do something different to really mix it up. And I submitted the mixtape, and then I started doing the program 
at midnight on Saturday nights, that's, that was my slot, mm -hmm. which was not a good time for me because I'd be partying on Saturday nights, and we all know <laughs> partying and broadcasting don't mix. Now uh, you tell me. <laughs> I, I quickly discovered that. And uh, the program was very popular, and so uh, they moved me up to an earlier slot in the afternoon and then in the early evening, and it was an hour-long program, and Fiesta Hispanica was on at that time, too, and Patty and the producer got crosswise, and he left, and Patty Cahill was, mm -hmm. the, was the, the director of the station at that time, the general manager, and so they had this big slot of time opened up, and they asked me if I could do four hours on Saturday night. Now, for an R&B DJ, that's golden. Mm -hmm. Four hours on a Saturday night, 100,000-watt station, yeah. doing my own thing, programming the show and hosting it. But at first, I wasn't sure I could do that, uh, that much radio, you know, that much R&B. And so, you know, after a couple of months of that, I, I settled into that slot, and then they approached me about um, maybe doing Friday night, too, because the Saturday night program, Fish Fry, was so much more popular than the jazz program I was doing on Friday night. And so about 19, it would have to be about 1987 or 86, I started doing both nights, and mm -hmm. I've been there ever since then. Yeah, cool. Wow, I think this is going to stick. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's going to work. Well, I always enjoy listening because it's stuff that I've never heard before, oh. and it always seems like a pretty good cut. You're picking good music, feels good, tastes yeah. good, smells oh. good. It's a lot of fun. I mean, you filled a giant gap. There was nothing on the radio like that when you went on there. No, there really, was, there really wasn't. I mean, Lindsay was doing a filling a big gap there because it was really hard to come by blues, and then you, you broadened it. Do you anybody else around the country doing this kind of thing, and they uh, look to you for kind of some guidance with the years you've invested in it and the thought you've given it? Yeah, actually, um, there was a little station in Montana that began lifting the fish fry off of the air and rebroadcasting it. <laughs> okay. And also, a friend of mine in Washington, D.C., it's on the community station, Bill Wax, often will send me emails saying, you know, hey, I, I, I get some ideas from you, and yeah. I get some ideas from him, too. Uh, I, I, there's not many programs like mine that have the mix that I have. And every other set leads with a new release, too. Mm -hmm, yeah. So I get about, oh, no, four or five CDs a week. Mm -hmm. And I've got to wade through those to, to kind of separate the wheat from the chafe and uh, decide what I'm going to play. And also, I, I, w I worked in the, my background's in the record industry. I, you know, worked for a one-stop. Uh, called Friends 2. I worked for small label distributor, mm -hmm. uh, house distributors, and I managed Penny Lane Records, and I worked for a music exchange, used record store, too. Sure. So I've been collecting for years, and of course, all men lie about the size of their record collections, but <laughs> I've managed to get a pretty good collection. Uh, I've seen collection. yours, man. It's, <laughs> it's bona fide. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what percentage of the house does it take over, do you think? <laughs> uh, it's the basement. Is it okay? About a third of the basement. Yeah, all right. Uh, but, you know, I mean, so keeping it, keeping it fresh and uh, you know, is it, a challenge because, you know, it's easy to go in and play the same thing over and over again, but, but you want to challenge your listener, but you don't want to lose them. Sure. The way, when I program the show, it takes about three and a half hours to program the show. And I'll go downstairs Tuesday night, 
go through and start working through the new releases and start programming it. And it's all very intuitive. Uh, I'll play a track and I'll say, hey, that sounds good. What goes with this? And then what goes with that? And uh, that's the way I put together the show. And usually on Friday nights, I get up at midnight, so I go home and program Saturday night's show on Friday night, most of it, and after midnight, go to bed about 2.30 in the morning. Hmm. Because I'm awake anyway. Yeah, sure. You know, so I'll go downstairs and drink some wine and, and program the show. <laughs> well, you do a masterful job. Have you ever hit some clams where you go, what, man... I don't know why I threw that in, and people give you trouble and call you, and you go, "Man, I, I, I shouldn't have popped that in there. I'm not you know, playing you know, that you know, anymore." I have, I have never had that happen to me. Believe never. Me. You are perfect. You're betting a thousand. Well, sometimes, sometimes some shows are better than others. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I can always tell, uh, you know, when when people pipe in on Facebook about if they, uh, they like the program, and I think people are being polite. Maybe they, I get some people that, you know, of course, the goal is not to have the listener turn off the radio. I have regular listeners in uh, Japan, mm -hmm. yeah. in Europe, so people can listen to the program all around the world. It used to be that your goal was to be on the, the network, mm -hmm. sure. have a syndicated program uh, that's distributed by uh, satellite. Right, yeah. But that's not so pressing anymore because, um, you know, people can listen to you online. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I noticed in our... Uh downloads for our podcast we have one person in italy downloading it so hello person in italy <laughs> whatever you're doing over there it's just fascinating yeah sure and and, and you know and, and it's and of course the goal with radio or any media is to cultivate younger audiences and i have a very diverse audience my biggest fans at 46 in montgall the other biggest fan is on ward parkway mm -hmm. and i'm surprised how young people love the show, you know, because it's I, I'm I'm doing what the Rolling Stones did to all of us in the, back in the day. I'm introducing them to American music. Right. Yeah. Sure. You know, I remember picking up that first Stones record and saying, "Who's this Ellis McDaniel? Who's Willie Dixon?" Mm -hmm, yeah. Yeah. You know, sure. and, and and you know, you, you you follow that 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 thread back to. Chicago Blues to Slim Harpo and all these back there. Yeah, yeah. And I have regular artists that I regularly feature, such as Howlin' Wolf, Professor Longhair, Muddy Waters, you know, mm -hmm. like that. But I like to sometimes take what I call the musical path less traveled. Wow. We got a lot of, uh, there were a lot of English bands that were kind of doing the, reintroducing the American. Oh, sure. Look at the animals. Mayall. That's what they were listening to John over there. Mayall, yeah. yeah, for inspiration but, when they were kids. Yeah. Oh, definitely. yeah. And, and, you know, uh, I mean, when I heard, you know, the Rolling Stones doing Mona, I Need You Baby when I was about 14 years old, that, you know, of course, I was all testosterone up, you know, and uh, that really kind of went, I went like, whoa, there's a lot of passion <laughs> here. And then, you know, of course, it's a Bo Diddley song. More coming up with Chuck in just a minute. We'll check out some info on that Mar Sound Archive. Dick, I'm thirsty. What do you say we go down to the lounge and have a drink? Yeah, I'm always ready for that, yeah. Yeah, I hope they got the new broccoli-flavored vodka in. Hey, look, it's it's the jazz guy. Wow, it's Dick and Lloyd. Hey, how are you cats, man? Doing okay. What have you been up to? Well, I've been uh, on my computer and I bought a bunch of stuff, man. I don't really remember why, but I sang a little song about it. So here we go. Cool. Cool. 
I got a 5G cell phone I can hold up next to my head. I got some lawn darts I can throw while I'm smoking in bed. I got some enlargers. I got some enhancers. I send in some bills with my problems and got some pills for the answers. I got a Geiger counter from Nagasaki somebody abandoned. I got an 8-track tape of opioidal yodeling in a canyon. I got a fishing knife from Asia that cuts while it pinches. I can take it on an airplane cause it's under 3 inches. I got plastic straws with no flaws. I can throw them in the ocean till they change all the laws. I got a turtleneck sweater with six holes that hold beer. And some vanishing cream so my conscience is clear. I got Kents with the Micronite filters that still smoke like a dream. They spent three years in Milton's tap room. They were stuck in the machine. I got a test pattern Indian, but I don't know why I bothered. He gets all weepy at midnight and starts singing our father. I got another enhancer, I got another enlarger, and when my 5G phone is in my pants, it's a battery charger. Somehow my love for that gal, it always uh, Another selection from the Mars Sound Archives. Chuck, tell us more about this place. Well, there had been uh, uh, an effort underway to establish a sound archive here since the 1970s based upon the collection of Gaylord Marr. Gaylord was an associate, well, he was an associate, he was a professor of communication studies. And he was a pioneer of using media in the classroom. You know, in those days, you had a a blackboard, you know, desk, chair, chairs. Mm -hmm. And he would bring in uh, cassettes and play uh, musical examples or recorded examples of what he was lecturing about. Say, for example, he's talking about the women's movement and change in the 1920s, he'd bring in songs of the suffragettes. Or if he's talking about Hitler's use of media, he'd bring in speeches by Hitler. Mm-hmm. Or talking about the Depression, he'd bring in songs like Button Up Your Overcoat or Wearing the Money. Uh, and he looked at music in a cultural context. And when I started, there was a room with nothing in it. Now there's a room with 380,000 sound recordings in it. <laughs> And the foundation collection came from Gaylord's house. I think it was 43,000 sound recordings in his place. He had an outbuilding that was full of records. And so we started building this collection, and um, over the years it's grown and our services have increased. Uh, We have two preservation labs, audio preservation lab and video preservation lab. And we serve researchers internationally. We have an international reputation for our collection. A lot of it centers around our radio collection. We have... Those are unique items. We have 30,000 16-inch radio discs, and plus a number of radio-related collections. So uh, that's an aspect of our collection that's used quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So you have recordings from radio shows that probably run a wide range of dates. and Yeah, we have, um, we, they, they begin in the 19, late 1920s and goes up until the 40s. Uh, we also have a lot of local radio, like for example, we have the KMBC collection. I was amazed at that. I looked at that online. That's quite a collection you've yeah. got there, and and old uh, radio shows they produced here locally. That oh they, yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. Inc- incredible. I'm interested in the history of radio. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was a kid, I used to listen to the radio all the time. I'd go out in the garage and listen to the radio, transistor radio, and I had a transistor radio. I wanted the radio implanted in my head so I would, when I went to school I could listen to the radio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my brother had a 40 Ford in the driveway and I knew where the key was. And I used to go out there and pretend I was going to California and listen to the radio. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I drove the battery down, just driving crazy. So, so I'm, I'm very interested in radio. And the KMBC collection uh, is interesting 
part of it came from Arthur B. Church, a junior, whose father started the station back in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. And then part of it came from actually KMBC. Uh, I got a call one day from a former student of Gaylord's, and there were all these lacquers, 16-inch lacquers in the basement in this metal cabinet. And uh, they uh, were recorded during the 30s and 40s, and the station was being sold, and they were afraid that the new owners would move that stuff to New York City, and we'd lose a lot of that local history. So I literally went in and snuck it all out the back door. Mm. Okay. And, you know, there's programs like the Brush Creek Folly. And, I saw that, yeah. And country programs and, and mm -hmm. all the paperwork associated with it. So it's a really a slice of the Kansas City radio history. Well, tonight is it, neighbors. This is Saturday, and that means Brush Creek Follies tonight at the TV Playhouse 11 and Central here in Kansas City, Missouri. The show starts at 8 o'clock, and the box office is open at 7. And the price is just 75 cents for any seat in the house. Texas Rangers, Toon Chasers, Colorado Pete, Tiny Tillman, Millie and Sue, Harry Jenks, Ray Holder and his square dancers, Herbie and his banjo, David Andrews, and my silly country cousin Elmer. And then, of course, our guest for tonight's sunny day. So what a show we're going to have tonight. Now, you get three big features, too. First, the Brush Creek Follies Radio Talent Contest, then the Brush Creek Follies with Sunny Day, and then square dancing after the show. And all of this for just 75 cents for any seat in the house. So, friends, I'll see you folks tonight. All right, well, let's get things started here with the Texas Rangers, fellas. It looks like you got Missouri oh, Stomp. we got one on here. Yes, sir, well, Missouri right, Stomp. I'm interested in that fella out there. almost forgot, Hiram. <laughs> it's Missouri Stomp. Okay, the Missouri Stomp. <laughs> And unfortunately, so much history's been lost for the price of a tape. Yeah. As you know, Dick, sure. and you know, Loy, uh -huh. you know, when, you're working, when we were working with Open Reel, we would regularly bulk erase programs mm -hmm. sure. and reuse the tape. Yeah. If you look at Walt Bodine's collection, there's a big gap in, in the 1980s okay. where he did that. Digital, fortunately, uh, you know, we're able to uh, store digital files more efficiently. And we don't, not, there's no need to reuse those, so mm -hmm. that's, the digital era is pretty well documented. And yeah, some of those exactly. tapes would turn to dust when you play them, practically. Uh, yeah, then, and the tapes break down over a period of time. One of the challenges that we have here is that uh, there's a problem with tapes called, the deterioration of tapes called sticky shed syndrome. When they changed the formula for tapes in the early 70s, when they banned whaling, they changed the formula mm -hmm. uh, because they used whale oil as a lubricant okay. in the tapes. And, and the, the new formula proved to be unstable, and it sheds the black backing on the tape and gums up the heads. Okay, yeah. So you've got to cook them, or we use a food dehydrator to dry them out, and then you get one you get one opportunity to transfer oh, them. Yeah, I've heard of the oven thing, but the dehydrator, sure, that'd be great. Yeah, great that idea. came yeah. from the Grateful Dead. But you got one it, yeah. shot, or else it's yeah. it's and, wiped out. And then, yeah, and so and the lacquers, you know, are cellulose. The so-called lacquers are discs, of course, are cellulose acetate over a metal core or glass core during World War II when there's shortage of metal, and those contract and expand at different rates according to fluctuation in temperature and humidity. Mm -hmm. And so they break down. So those are the things that we preserve. And we, we record them into a computer as a WAV file using A to D conversion. And then using FTP protocol, we store those WAV files at the server farms down in Columbia where they're kept alive. Okay. And of course, as with any 
technology, you, you don't want to get too far ahead or too far behind. Mm -hmm. You want to remain current with it. Well, you wonder, and I wonder, you know, I've got a lot of things that I've collected through my years in, in media and things, but you wonder, what is the format? They have a Victorola here. They can play some of that <laughs> yeah, stuff. I see that, yeah. Uh, what form do you keep things for the future that can be played? You know, what? where do you put it? Uh, CDs? Uh, did you know, you know, how do you make that decision? Uh, 100 years from the future, will they be able to play what you've saved things on? Well, that, that's the challenge. That's why we use wave files. Wave mm -hmm. files have become the de facto standard. Yeah. And they're universally access accessible. And also, they don't, we don't use FLAC or MP3. We create MP3s for listening copies. We don't, we mm. don't use compressed files right. for long-term storage because, you know, you're degrading the audio signal. You're stripping away bits of information when you compress a file. Mm -hmm. So we just transfer it as a straight, we just, no equalization, nothing. We just transfer it straight. And then if we want to EQ it, we can make a copy of the file and then EQ it there. Do you go in and digitally mm -hmm. uh, take out mm -hmm. any pops or anything like that? Are you trying to do that, or are you leaving it as the way you get it? We're leaving it as the way we get it. Okay. And then if we want to declick it, we can. Mm -hmm. The nice thing about digital, too, is it used to be if somebody wanted a copy, we would send them a cassette or a CD. Now we can uh, provide them with a digital file. If it's something, say for example, somebody in, in Australia wants to listen to an oral history we have, and they contact us, we put it on the server, and we make it available to them as stream media. Mm -hmm. You know, because we have a lot of really rare items in here, particularly radio, where collectors will want copies so they can share with other collectors. So we have to, you know, what determine what's an appropriate use of the collection. Sure. So that's how we make things available remotely. Yeah, that's really where it's going to go eventually, right? I mean, That's people correct. are going to be able to get to these obscure little things and learn a lot about history. And Yeah, you, we have to be careful because of, of copyright. I mean, copyright's kind of gone out the window as far as the Internet's concerned. It's kind of like the Wild West these days. Mm -hmm. But because we work, we're part of the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and, and the, the uh, Miller Nichols Library, we have to inherit a copyright. But we do have a lot of digital... Um, assets that, that we could make available. Uh, things that we've already digitized, uh, for example, the KMBC collection. Uh, Mr. Church owns the copyright to that, and he's given us permission to put it up. Uh, and also the Frank Driggs Oral History collection. And there's a number of these archival collections, or Walt Boudin's collection, mm -hmm. uh, that what, you know, unfortunately, we don't have the resources right now to do that, but that doesn't mean that we can't in the future. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm the curator now, uh, Derek really is the head. Derek Long is the head of the Sound Archive, and Derek is a, is a techie. I'm not a techie. Mm -hmm. I'm an old school guy. I can run the board down at KCUR, but you know, I'm, I'm not up on all the latest trends. And he's working on uh, uh, the, the the platform to make these recordings available internationally. That's our mm -hmm. goal. Yeah, very cool. What do you have in here that? Uh, really stands out that you're really proud of. Any uh, couple of things you can think of that... Uh... Oh, sure. There's a recording of Charlie Parker, previously unknown recording of Charlie Parker, and where he's playing with the Jay McShann Band in February of 1940. And there's always been some question about when Charlie Parker developed bebop. You know, the, if you talk to somebody from New York, he developed it in New York. But... By this particular recording, he's, it, all, all the 
the the characteristics of bebop are there. You know, he's playing sixteenth uh, notes and double time, and and he's just taking wing on this recording. It's, it's incredible solo. It came from the John Tamino collection. Tamino was the manager of Charlie Parker and of, of Jay McShann band, and he liked gadgets, and he had one of the first. Uh, disc cutting machines in town, the, the commercially issued ones. Mm -hmm. Wow! Yeah. And he recorded that. And there's, there's and that a, was in Kansas City. That was in Kansas City. Jamie and there's um, uh, so you know, I arguably uh, the bebop sound came from oh, yeah, Kansas City. Yeah. When I when I wrote my, I, of course I'm the author of two books in addition to everything else: the Kansas City Jazz from Ragtime to Bebop by Oxford University Press, and Bird the Life Music of Charlie Parker. When I dug into the, the, the Charlie Parker's story here, it turned out to be completely different than what had been written before. And a lot of it centered around this previously unknown recording that just happened to come through the door. Bobby Tamino gave it to us. And I just put the needle in the groove and went, wow. Can we listen to that? Well, I, I, I don't want to put it out. Uh-huh. Okay. Quite yet. Uh, it's not, it has never been issued. I see. So what I'm waiting for is somebody put together a... Uh, Put together an anthology and then I'll make it available then. Okay. You know, I played it at a, at a, uh, a place at a conference, the International Association of Jazz Record Collectors. Mm -hmm. Next thing I know, a disc jockey in New York's playing a very watered down version of it. Okay. You know, very, oh, from a cell phone or yeah, something. Yeah, from a cell phone, yeah. Yeah, I'll be darned. Wow. But there's also, you know, uh, oh, oral histories where people are talking about Studs Turkle's interviewing people and they're talking about the bonus army. Uh, the veterans that went to the White House to get their money that they were owed, and how uh, you know the president unleashed troops on them, and and you know sad songs and, and field recordings. Mm -hmm. um, there's there's some very interesting unique material in the collection. Now, can uh, the public come in, and how can they get access to any of this? Just come in, and they can listen on site. Can they? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Or you know if. They're, if they're, say, for example, in uh, San Francisco and they want to hear something in the collection, um, they can request a 300 library loan. We'll make it available to them as stream media. Okay. One of the things that sets us apart, the focus of the collection is the American experience is reflected in recorded sound. And under that big umbrella, we're known for a jazz collection because we have all these archival jazz collections. Uh, but we also have a great collection of opera, classical, uh, and, and Americana, folk music, uh, bluegrass, country music, soul, blues. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, the collection is very broad. Do you have any party records? We do have party records. <laughs> we file them under party. Under do you? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, we've got party records. I have to explain to people what party Rusty records Warren. are. You probably... Uh, knockers up. Yeah. Knockers up, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, we've got those. Well, we've got some of these, these 78s. They used to put these 78s out that were party records. They were marked party records because yeah. they were risque. Right. And uh, we have a collection of those, too. Uh, one of the things that sets us apart also is not only our, the nature of our collection or the kind of things we collect, the LPs have all been cataloged, so you can look things up. And there are about 12,000 of our 16-inch discs have been cataloged, so they're available internationally through WorldCat. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, of course, we put our finding aids up so that people can look through our archival collections also. Now, let's say somebody's at home and down in the basement, they've got something that their great-grandfather gave them. What do they need to do to get to you to say, uh, do you want this? Just give me a call. Mm -hmm. Area code 816-235-2798. <laughs> 24 the, hours a day. <laughs> the, um, I had a, 
uh, a guy contact me. Uh, he was in Phoenix, and it was John Kuhn's son-in-law. And John Kuhn was a, with a band leader in his own right, but he was Carlton Kuhn's son of Kuhn Sanders Regional Nighthawk Orchestra. Mm -hmm. And John had passed, and he was going through John's material, and he came across a letter that I'd written expressing interest in the collection. And and I still had the same phone number. He called me up, called that number, and I was still at the other end. So, and that collection came to You are time. old school, Chuck. Yes, I am old school. <laughs> you probably still use the uh, exchange letters, right? Exactly. <laughs> Henderson 4 or whatever. Uh, Gladstone. Gladstone. 4 Yes, yeah, there you go. Wow. Yeah. Chuck, some of our uh, listeners are in the advertising and marketing business. Uh, is there any opportunity for people to pay fees to the archives to use some of this material to yeah, we, we commercially? Make a, yes, yes, they can. Uh, as long as, you know, as they adhere to copyright. Uh, but we, we are approached uh, regularly by individuals in radio and also in marketing uh, to use uh, material in the sound archive. Marketing is, is a really, uh, and radio, a very important part of our collection. I mean, the two go hand in hand. You're playing music on the radio or having a conversation on the radio to sell somebody something. I'm surprised right. that uh, I didn't see anything from like WDAF radio. Uh, you know, you get your KMBC uh, collection, but the other WDAF and some of the other older stations, the KCMOs and those kind of things, you, you don't have things from them quite like you do from that other collection. No, we have um, we have the the uh, WHB. IDs, okay. world, world happiest broadcasters, and all that. Mm -hmm. and disc jockeys the actually jingles. doing it. Yeah, we got it from uh, mm -hmm. uh, Dick. Um, he wrote. He wrote the history. Fatherly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Dick Ward Fatherly. Yeah. He, he wrote the uh, Richard Ward Fatherly. Richard he wrote, Ward he, Fatherly. He, uh, yes. he he was classic radio guy. He wrote the history of WHB and he gave us all the oh all cool the, all the all those some jingles and things like yeah. that. How about that Arthur Conley? That's the Funky Street Beat, the new dance everybody's doing. It's two and a half minutes past seven o'clock, 7.02 a.m. This is Fatherly with you till 10. Good morning. We do have, uh, also we have the Ed Roach collection, who was an early engineer here, and there's lots of radio in sure. there. Yeah. Lots of jingles. Uh, and, and I also think I remember going to his studio a uh, time or two, and he had uh, up on the second floor all this old equipment sitting oh, yeah. around and things like that. Yeah. And we also have Vic Damon's uh, Okay, sure. Too. Damon. He, did, he recorded Downtown. a lot of um, uh, commercials. Look to your Long Bell Lumberyard and Building Supply Store. When you fix up, paint up, look to Long Bell. Long Bell, Long Bell, every item priced to sell. If you've never looked before, you'll find them in our retail store. If you want screen doors to buy for, trellis for rows, all kinds of garden holes, a creosoted post or a picket fence, our kitchen cabinets at minimum expense, all kinds of lumber or a new oak floor and quality paints in colors galore, you'll find them all and more as well at Long Bell, Gregory and Warnell. 
For the most famous name in lumber, building supplies, and home repairs, look to your Long Bell retail yard at Gregory and Warnell. Chuck, are you right? Have you got any other writing projects in the works? I'm working on a, uh, I just finished a chapter on the Coon Sanders Original Nighthawk Orchestra uh, for a book on Kansas City between the war of the Pendergast era, published by KU, in conjunction with Kansas City Public Library and History Department here. And that's coming out in the fall. And that is a project that's kind of ongoing. They, they, you talk about radio, the history of radio in Kansas City. Uh, they were really the pioneers. I mean, they began broadcasting in 1922 from the Plantation Grill in the Hotel Mulebach over WDF. And they had a clear channel, so they, the signal could be picked up all across the country. And, I mean, from Hawaii to Maine, uh, Canada to Mexico, and even down to the Caribbean. And they, their careers really reflect the era that they lived in, the 1920s and the exuberance of that, and then the Depression. Uh, and Carlton Kuhn passed away in the early 1930s and ended that. But uh, it's a fascinating story of, of Gangsters. I mean, it has it all. And I'm tempted to write a book, and I may yet write a write a book on them because they become a metaphor for the country. Uh, but that's kind of like my research project I'm working on right now. Mm-hmm. And they were a metaphor for Kansas City, really, because yeah. when you think about the scale of influence that came out of here at that time, we we had kind of a clear channel. Yeah, we did, and, and they, they really established Kansas City as a beacon for jazz. I mean, they played hot jazz. They were a white band that played hot jazz. And they also were the first, the, you know, the media, of course, radio was, was a lot like the Internet today. Uh, it brought the country together, the Golden Web. And they, they effectively used radio uh, to promote the band. They, they, did, they had the first uh, fan club. They were the first organized group to broadcast regularly on the, on the radio. And they also helped establish the networks. You know, when, when you talk about radio, and I'm a student of the history of radio, uh, you know, radio creates the first mass culture, pop culture, because people in rural areas were listening to the same thing that people in urban areas mm-hmm. were listening to. Sure, yeah. And, you know, during the Depression, families would sell everything but their radio mm-hmm. because yeah. it kept them informed and connected to the world. Right, yeah. And it's very democratic, you know, it's not like when you, if you, in the early days of, of the, the phonograph, you would have to buy records. And they were a dollar a piece, which was a, you know, working man's day's wage, really. But radio is very democratic. All you have to do is listen to the, the, the ads, and it doesn't cost you anything once you buy the radio. Mm-hmm. The radio. Yeah, sure. And you look at things like you run across these, these old, what a big industry published sheet music was. Sure. Before there was that ability to connect with the actual produced music. Well, uh, popularity of songs was gauged by sheet music in the early days. The record industry doesn't become big business until the Beatles. Also, mm-hmm. it doesn't become an international business until the Beatles. Seriously. And they, you have they changed everything. Dexter, uh, the guy with... Uh, yeah, Dave Dexter Jr. With Capital. Right. You've got a lot of things on there. I read last night with the Beatles, and, and there's some interesting uh, memos that they pass back and forth between the management about how to handle the stuff yeah, coming from England. And Well, Dexter was from Kansas City, and he was uh, the first to write about Kansas City Jazz and Metronome and, and Downbeat, which was his mm-hmm. correspondence for them. And then he went to work for Capitol Records in the early 40s, and he, they hired him to keep an eye on Johnny Mercer, 
who was a notorious alcoholic and kind of crazy wild man. And he became the uh, the A&R man, international A&R man. And at that time, of course, Capital uh, uh, was owned by EMI. Mm -hmm. And um, so he was trying to break these international records, things like Big Ben's banjo band, mm -hmm. and selling yeah. you know three hundred four hundred and fifty copies, you know, <laughs> and, and and then he came across the Beatles uh, when he went to England, and he he encouraged Jerry Livingston to sign the Beatles and to release the Beatles. He signed the Beatles to Capitol Records, and he produced their releases in this country. They'd already been releasing. Uh, their LPs and, and 45s in England, but he was the one that introduced them to this country. Ironically, he couldn't stand John Lennon. Mm -hmm. He thought Lennon was a smart ass. He didn't like Charlie Parker either. He knew both of them. Mm -hmm. And when Lennon was assassinated, he wrote an op-ed piece in Billboard about what a miserable SOB Lennon was. <laughs> and Walter Cronkite called Dexter up and said, you get a little heat for that, Dex? And he didn't care. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Always a good move. But he was the international, uh, you know, A and R man that really introduced the Beatles to this country. Right from Kansas City, and he yeah. produced their mm -hmm. first recordings yeah. too. You know what, Dick? Before we before we uh, wrap up with Chuck, I, uh -huh. every interview with Chuck Haddix has to mention Milt Morris. Oh. Okay. Okay. So there you go. I did it. Yeah. I well, I when I was younger, I used to hang out with all the old guys. Now I am the old guy. <laughs> And one of my favorite people, I was really introduced to jazz uh, by Milton Morris. Uh, he had a club down on Main Street called Milton's Tap Room. It was on Main, just a little bit north of Linwood. I can still see the sign, I think. Oh, yes. yes. Uh, yeah. In your mind, mm, you know, yeah. there's a Costco there now. But uh, uh, I used to hang out at Milton's Tap Room and talk to Milton. And Milton was an interesting old guy. You know, he was an old gangster, really, in the 20s and 30s, an old arm breaker. It was rumored that when Johnny Lazio was killed, uh, was shot, that he, get, he, gave him a, he was the one to give him a blood transfusion from Milton. And he, ha he was a character man. He would run for governor. And he would garner like 10,000 votes on legal. He was way ahead of his time. Legalized gambling was his platform. Mm -hmm. yeah. And he wanted to make Kansas City a swinging place once again. He was kind of a lonely voice in the wilderness in the 60s and 70s. But he had this wonderful jazz collection, and he played, uh, played records. And jazz records, and it was like nothing. Uh, the music's free, so like no requests. That's right. And he had a clock that went backwards too. Okay. But he and he was. And the he, place was so pitch black inside. Oh yeah. That the cigarette machine was the only thing that gave you any bearings when you got exactly, in there. Exactly. Exactly. Took it took twenty minutes for your eyes to adjust. Yeah, and he used to joke that he used to unscrew the uh, a light bulb every year because he didn't have to clean the place. <laughs> and one of the things about it is you never wanted to be in Milton's when the lights went on. And he, and he, he, he Julia Lee worked for him for years, so he used to end the night with last call for alcohol. When you hear that, everybody would scramble for the door because all the magic would be dissipated of Milton's when the lights went on. There you go, yeah. He taught me a lot about life. And, and he really inspired me to study Kansas City Jazz because he told all these crazy stories, you know. Uh, and have you, you got any of these recorded? Yeah, actually, I, I do have a recording of Milton. Yeah. And the, and the, I just found uh, one. My dad had a, a half an hour interview with him. Oh, really? Yeah, that'd as a vi audio visual. Oh, that's so, great to see. Yeah, I just remembered that. I got to bring that to you. Spend wow. some time with Milton. But you, you know, one thing about Milton, you always wondered if he was a reliable narrator, if he's telling you the truth. 
Mm-hmm. There's always that in the back because the stories are so fantastic. And then he told this story about how Julia Lee, during the cleanup, Julia Lee was performing at his place and they busted her for singing risque songs that are, quote, mother taught her not to sing. Mm-hmm. And so uh, she went to jail and she, she pleaded that she'd sung these, these songs in some of the best homes in Kansas City. So the judge, you know, dismissed the charges basically. But later Milton saw the, the offending uh, officer, the officer that arrested her out at the ballpark and he paid a kid five bucks to push him down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I was doing my research for my Kansas City book, I came across Julie actually did get arrested. And I have no doubt that he paid some kid five bucks to push him down wow. the offending officer downstairs. <laughs> Why I, used, I used to hang out with Milton. Now I am Milton. No, you are. Yeah, <laughs> you got to start taking out some personals ads. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, I ain't mad at nobody. You know, I, I was going through the Journal Post. I came across during the '30s. Milton advertised in the Journal Post. Originally, he would he would say, "I'm mad." You know, these people owe me money, and he did that for just a very short while. And then all of a sudden, he had a change of heart. He said, "I ain't mad." I ain't mad at nobody. If I've loaned you money, you owe me money, come back home. I was talking to Milton, and he used to keep the checks above the above the doorway. And Chet Baker bounced a check on him. And it's just kind of a, a remembrance of people that have been there. And I asked him, I said, uh, you know, why do you keep those checks? And he goes, you know, it's the saddest thing. He told me the saddest part of it was when people owed him money and they didn't come back in, he never saw them again. But if he, if he forgave his debts, they'd come back in and make more money off of them. Mm, okay. and, so, and so he would actually publish it in I the remember, paper. On, on I couldn't figure that out. At uh, the end you of know, the year. Why is this guy running? You know, when I was a kid, I was reading the the one ads, and I kept seeing this guy going, come on in, come on home. I ain't mad at nobody. Milton. Oh, yeah, and made his own money. I couldn't he figure made that one out. Printed his own money, Milton money. I remember those, yeah. Huh. Wow. He, he, he used to character used to glue quarters to the floor and watch people try and come in and pick up the quarters. Picking them up. <laughs> well, you do that now, don't you? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it's that corner of the floor. What is that? <laughs> Can we look around here a bit? Can you show us some things around here? Sure. When I do tours, I show people the evolution of recorded sound using these. For example, this is Stella. This is a music disc player. Mm-hmm. Um, Stella. It's built in the 1890s, and this is musical automata. This Big, is not uh, naturally recorded sound. Metal disc with holes in it. Metal disc wow. with, with mm-hmm. perforations, and the teeth here come up and pluck the comb, make the notes, and then, then this is the soundboard that amplifies that. And this is what Stella sounds like. All right. It's powered by... By your arm. By my arm. When I turn that crank, it tightens the spring, and as the spring unwinds it turns the mechanism. That makes you want to dance, doesn't it? It does. I want to twirl. Well, the um, Edison developed the technology to record natural sound and to play it back. Uh, and if the first, uh, he, manu- he began manufacturing cylinders and, and he discovered the technology in 1877. He put it on the shelf while he perfected the light bulb, but this was mm-hmm. his, uh, that became his bread and butter but he always loved audio, the black the, cylinder with black the cylinder. cuttings around the outside of it. Yeah, this, this is a hardened soap wax cylinder. Uh-huh. This is a blue amber roll. He began manufacturing the blue amber roll in 1912. Cellulose acetate over a uh, uh, 
Plaster Parish Core. And you've got one on there. You're cranking. It's the big horn like the RCA dog. Yes. Sets next right. to. This is, a, this, is like opera opera. this is an opera machine. This is an Edison. Yeah. All right. We're right up here by the horn. Here we go. Chuck, thanks so much for talking to us. It's always a pleasure, and uh, we never get enough of you, With even though we've got got you Friday and Saturday nights on the fish fry. What are the times? Friday and Saturday nights from 8 to midnight, 89.3 on your FM dial, or we're available internationally at kcur.org. Got it, yeah. And then the Mars Sound archives, mm -hmm. if you've got some wonderful material there that Chuck needs to get his hands on or if you are looking to spend a fortune on getting some really obscure cool uh, sound for your advertising campaigns or whatever where do they go Chuck? This guy call me actually visit us on web you can google us and we're on the web and you yeah. can contact us. Mars Sound Archives and it all pops up there. Yeah. Uh, hang on a minute. Let me let me grab this. Hello. Hey, Dick. Tony Labruzzo, second base coach for the Kansas City Royals. How you doing, Dick? Dad, doing okay. How's it going? Uh, it's not so good. You know where I still have a little bit of trouble out there on the field. Uh, uh, yeah, they are. Yeah. You know, we got some ideas though. I think it's gonna help out. What's the plan? Well, you know, attendance is down a little bit, so we uh, came up with an idea. Next year, we're gonna. Uh, Kind of take a year off from Royal Stadium. We're gonna switch. Uh, we're gonna switch ballparks with the uh, T bones. What? Other than that, you know, uh, I guess you heard we got rid of the W guy. Yeah. We figured, what the hell? I mean, he wasn't doing anything. So, uh, <laughs> well, the boys—they've been kind of uh, reminiscent of the old Kansas City A's the way they've been playing. So, oh, yeah. We figured we bring back Casey the Elephant. Huh. Yeah. What? Except we're going to call it Casey the L of fun. I get it. He's going to hold up a big L with his trunk, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I figure yeah. that'll bring a little bit of joy to the kids or something. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh. And, uh, hey, we got some new pennants in. I'm going to send oh. you one here. Okay. Let me text it to you, Dick. All right. Tell me what you think. Let me grab my phone. Okay. Here. All right. Okay. Well, it, it's a white flag, like a surrender thing. Hey, you know, it's unusual, and in our case, it makes a lot of sense. So uh, we'll see how they sell. Talk to you later, Dick. Thanks, Tony. And Royals, don't worry. It'll turn around in the future some way. Thanks to Chuck Haddix. And speaking for Lloyd and myself, thank you for listening this far into the show and downloading Dick and Lloyd's Media and Marketing Mayhem. We'll see you next time. You might love it. You might hate it. It's my favorite freaking show. 